Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Two days ago, Bodie Miller announced his new ski company, Peak Skis. So I talked to Bodie this week to learn more about this project and what makes it unique. And turns out, Bodie has a whole lot to say about that. I also asked Bodie about this past Winter Olympics, and unsurprisingly, he had a whole lot of interesting takes on the Olympics and specifically on all the alpine racing. We also talked ski boots and what he is looking to do through his partnership with Scarpa. This is Bodie's second time on Gear 30, and we've also had him on our Blister podcast. And I've got to say, every one of these conversations has been a tour de force. So if you somehow missed our previous two conversations, we'll include a link to both of them in the show notes of this episode. And seriously, do yourself a favor and check them out. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by Mountain Flow. And given the spring touring that many of us are doing with a lot of freeze-thaw cycles and skiing, frankly, a lot of warm, sticky snow, this would be a very good time to go to mountainflow.com to check out their climbing skin wax and their ski base wax. You know, because the one thing that can get real bad about spring skiing, maybe the only thing is when you start getting in that sticky, grabby snow and you just feel like you're getting thrown over the handlebars. Nobody wants that. So again, mountainflow.com. Furthermore, for those of you who've already given up on ski season, you know who you are and you're already breaking out the mountain bikes. Well, you have reason to go to mountainflow.com to check out their biodegradable zero petroleum bike lube and their other bike products too. Bottom line, Mountain Flow is producing 100% plant-based biodegradable products with zero petroleum that are simply a lot better for the environment. So do a good thing for the environment, keep your skis and your bike running well, and then go get outside and be happy. All right, and with that, let's now get to my conversation with Bodie Miller. Here we go. Well, Bodie, good to have you back on Gear 30. How are you today and where are you today? Doing well. About average, but I consider that very well. Um, I'm up in Big Sky, Spanish Peaks in Montana. Excellent. I think that should be either a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. My average is very well. <laughs> you just so people know. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, hey, we've got... Well, several big things, I guess, to be talking about today. I don't know, in no particular order, I kind of want to ask you about the Winter Olympics, which on the one hand just happened and in some ways feels like that's already been quite a few, uh, well, quite a few minutes ago, let's say. So, but I was just curious what takeaways you kind of had from this past Winter Games. Yeah, I, I would equate it to emotional cycles. Right. That's what that's what we tend to, you know, chronology works in a weird way, especially now with COVID. Everybody's kind of lost, lost a lot of their typical chronological markers. But, um, yeah, you know, it was it was a little bit of a, of a disappointment for me. Obviously, I'm a huge Michaela fan. So 
to see her struggle with her equipment. And that's, I got asked a lot of times about it. And, you know, yeah, of course, she could have adjusted. There's things she could have done. But to me, it was really obvious that the atomic athletes and the tech events really struggled on that snow, full man-made snow. They typically have a really, the Redsters, I mean, everybody, anyone who skied on those skis knows they're very aggressive, very powerful, hyper-quick ski. And they tend to, on regular snow, that's great. If on ice, they, you know, they get grip, whatever, no problem. But I watched it. If you go back, you know, anyone who has that kind of time on their hands, go back and watch how many uh, atomic athletes. Everyone was pretty focused on Michaela. And since Hersher's not there, he was the other, like, superstar. He would have had wicked trouble on the, on those conditions because he is so quick and so aggressive. I almost guarantee he would have hooked a tip in the slalom, and I almost guarantee he would have hipped out in the GS, just like Michaela did. Because those two are the two superlatives in my mind in men's and women's skiing in my lifetime. And dynamics, the, the power, the, the technique, form, tactics, everything. And to watch Michaela go warp speed, get pinned in, try to break the skis off an arc below the gate, bounce because they're way too aggressive to do there and she again i spent my entire life adjusting to terrible things because i was tactically terrible and had a not great technique so for me i was like oh my god like if i did that but for her she never does that because she's always above the gate and always like has space so when she got pinched in because the ski reacts too quickly gets too tight is too straight has to break the ski sideways below the gate she'd never really done that on super aggressive snow it just bounces you saw her hopping i mean when's the last time you saw michaela hopping below the gate you know and then the next turn is where she went out but the mistake really started a gate and a half before that where she initiated where she thought she had plenty of room and got pinched in on the gate and that was like i mean honestly 95 percent of my turns that's what happened to me so i, I reached out to her and, and wanted to tell her just detune de the skis detune the skis bring it all the way back to 30 30 centimeters underfoot. I mean, like gummy the tips, so you you can like you couldn't even cut butter with them, and then she would have been fine. But that's a big risk, you know, when you're such a dominant skier to make some dramatic change. But sometimes you got to do that when there's a very dramatic condition change. And you know, like we we talked about a little bit prior, um, you know, there was issues there. The the you know the Russian skater. I was on CNN a couple times, and you know, frustrated me because the guy on CNN, hey, what do you think about this Russian doping thing? And I said, well. To be fair, <laughs> I know you're CNN, she's not guilty yet. There's a process, right? There's an A sample and a B sample. And there's a whole reason around that. But you can't just take an A sample positive and say the person's doping. It's just not how the deal works because there has been examples where an A sample has been positive, a B sample has been negative. They're clear, perfect, all gone, never show it again, done. Um, and they hadn't tested the B sample yet. So I have fundamentally had a problem with that. And you saw what it did to the girl, right? I mean, she's under incredible pressure. Um, there's, I don't doubt that she was guilty of the doping infraction. I'm not saying she wasn't. I'm just saying you can't skip that part, right? That's a, it's just not how you do those things. But, and so because they skipped that part and put all that, I mean, no medal ceremonies, it, it like, I mean, talk about a, a really poorly managed situation front to back, right? Like, they, it's not like they don't know that she's not guilty yet. It's a question mark. And that's what that does. And that's why you have a B sample. So you just go through the process. And even if they brought it up, which they shouldn't have, it shouldn't have even been brought up. You bring it up once the person is positive. You don't bring it up like, hey, we think this person's, this person's doping because the court of public opinion moves very quickly and they're very quick to condemn. And that's um, what happened. And it was a shame because it really, ruined and affected a lot of people there a lot of these young girls these athletes that's a 
that's a brutally uh, a brutally aggressive way to approach, especially figure skating, where the girls are very young, they train incredibly hard, and the medal ceremony and that stuff is a big part of that sport. You know, that's it's kind of like a different sport than some other ones. Um, individual and man, it was that was that was really problematic for me. But I think a lot of people just had a sort of a sour feeling about the whole thing, whether it was you know Putin standing in the in the stands where Russia's banned from the Olympics, yet did anyone feel like Russia was banned from the Olympics? It's like, it'd be like me testing positive, and they're like, you are banned for life. But if you race under Samuel, which is your first name, that's totally cool, then you can go back. It's no problem. Just do not race under Bodhi. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like, to me, that's, there's some fundamental things that we definitely need to address that I think, unfortunately, came through the experience for a lot of a lot of people watching. And that's, that's, that's a bummer, because the Olympics is meant to be something more. And, uh, yeah, it just, it fell short this time for me. Hmm. Did you have sort of the biggest surprise performance or performer at the Olympics? Maybe we keep this to racing, right? Yeah, I thought, I thought Ryan uh, Cochran Siegel getting second. I thought that was, it wasn't a shock because he's obviously won a world cup before, but that was not an easy condition for him. He's a really aggressive suit like Michaela, very dynamic, drops the edges in really hard. And the bottom being so flat and such aggressive snow, I mean, he lost on the bottom. He should have won the race, honestly. But it's really hard to shift tactics in the middle. And he had to ski that way on the top because that's his strength and he was going to, you know, make up time. Um, but I thought, he, yeah, I was really impressed with his performance. Just just the level of intensity that he brought under those circumstances. I mean, if you watch, he he brought the most intensity in in the men's races across the board. He he was bringing the noise, like you could see it right out of the gate, and like that's what I love about you know racing, and I like seeing that. So for maybe it's different for me, but also you know to to bring home you know U.S. didn't have a great Olympics in terms of medal count uh, in the Alpine side, and I think he really stepped up. That was that was a spectacular performance. Not that it wasn't you know. He's very capable, but I was impressed with that one. Hmm. Shifting gears, you got a pretty big announcement. Uh, I think coming up in maybe two days, we're talking it's Monday, April 4th. I think you all go live in a day or two with this, and then this conversation will go up this Friday. Talk about your latest thing. Uh, it's not really the latest, but yeah, it's it's actually kind of been an evolving thing. It's uh, Peak Skis by Bodhi. And, you know we had sort of briefly talked, you know, throughout my career, I was on, when I was young, I was on Rossi, Olin, I was on Yamaha for a hot minute when I was 15. And then, and then I got on K2 and I was on K2 for a long stint. Then I was on Fisher for two years. Then I was on Rossignol for two years. Then I was on Tomic for two years. Then I was on Head for, for eight or nine years. And then I retired and then I was on Bomber for a minute and then I was on Crossin for a minute. And the whole process has always been for me trying to build good skis and also trying to not just build good skis for me to race on, but trying to push those skis or at least the technology, some of the, the benefits to the public market, to the consumer market. Because I think that's unfortunately not a, a doesn't really happen without somebody putting some effort into it. It tends to be lost. We get we get the awesome stuff, and then there's a pretty big gap down to the consumer skis. And um, and I, I was a beneficiary of of technology and innovation. Some driven by myself for the K24. Um, others like the Rosignol GS ski that I switched to that allowed me to win the GS title when I really didn't have any business winning the GS title against that GS field. I was not the best GS skier in the world that year, but I was simply on a really amazing set of skis that nobody else had. And so with that as kind of a template, 
I had experienced firsthand how much of a difference equipment innovation can make. And I'd always been trying to figure that out and trying to, and, and quite honestly failing. I mean, whether that was not so much due to the innovation, but due to the circumstances that I kept putting myself in where I wasn't really controlling, I wasn't driving the car. I was, I was a backseat ski builder. And ultimately a lot of the things that I would have seen done or would have tried to do just didn't get done because other people who were paying or were making, you know, the decisions didn't, didn't agree. And so with peak, we really, I really wanted to, to do something where it was sort of all the, the, the bridle, the bit was out and I could just, I could just run with it. You know, nobody's steering, but me and, uh, and sort of, and at this point too, you know, I had a stack of innovations that were kind of one after the other that really kind of play together really well. And I don't want to be sneaky. I don't want to patent things. I don't want to hide things. I want it to be open book and let the other companies take it apart. You know, sh- we're, I'm sharing what we're doing and hopefully it drives them to to not take risk, but build better skis. A lot of the companies, a lot of great guys, I love them all. They, they work hard. They build great skis, but there's the mechanism isn't really designed for them to take much risk. Their margins aren't huge. They can't, you know, retailers order skis that sell through. So whatever sells, they order those again for the next year. So inherently it stagnates, right? Because you're not going to buy some crazy new ski that you don't know if you're going to sell the next year. You buy what's sold, what's working. And so in this, we can be much more agile. We can be much more quick. We can take the risk because we change the economic model with a direct-to-consumer model. So we capture much more of the revenue. Therefore, um, with smaller scale, we can still be profitable and we can drive innovation. And the fact that I have a lot of things that I kind of already know work and that are just kind of stacked, we'll just share it. Then they can look at it. They don't have to do the work. They can just copy it and boom, it gets out into the marketplace because I can't build a couple million pairs of skis a year. So I want them to build better skis so that everybody gets to ski on better stuff. It's not going to it's not going to impact our ability to be successful as a company. And in this case, Peak, we got a Peak Skis, we got a really good team and um fantastic prototypes came back and we're launching on the 6th and we'll allow people, you know, $50 um, fully refundable uh, reservation to, to get the ones they want. Cause we're just not building that many. And it's frustrating if you want a pair of skis, but you got to get a 150 and <laughs> you really want a 185, um, which I think for, you know, the market this year, demand outpaced supply. It's the first time it's happened in my life. Um, normally that's not a thing, but this year it was. And so that also kind of creates a nice opening for us where, you know, people are recognizing higher quality. There's a lot of smaller ski companies that are hand making skis or paying more attention to it. And uh, we felt like there, it was the right time. Can you give us a bit of where you are in terms of initial model rollout or initial lineup? Yeah, again, I didn't take any risk because of the timing of things. And I was confident that what I wanted to build was going to be um, significantly better than more or less what's out there, but also identifiably different and suiting a much broader market or a much broader customer base, but also working on a much broader range of conditions, which are all pet peeves of mine. I, I, there's tons of great skis out there. A lot of them work really well on one condition and you need seven or eight pairs of skis if you're going to ski for a season to have a really great experience on all the different conditions available. So, and I just, you know, people have all different, you know, ski boot stances, weights, balance positions, all this stuff. So the typical design is kind of restrictive in that sense where it doesn't really give a huge range. And a lot of people will lie like, oh, I love this ski. And I could look at their boots and be like, yep, that's why, because you have a really upright boot and that ski would work better for you. So in this case, um, we rolled out four, four models to start. All four models came back exceptional. 
Um, two of them were basically like category toppers and the other two were in the top three or five somewhere. And that's splitting hairs. Honestly, at that point, they're all exceptional skis, but they were all also identifiably different than what's out there. A lot of the skis are kind of, they feel a lot the same. They might be more damp. They might be a little tighter radius, but generally the same. These are notably different, um, based on the keyhole technology. One of the kind of critical pieces that I wanted to get right, um, first try, and, uh, and then we spun off two side country models out of that because we realized that we were actually going to add some weight. And then there was also bits of those that we wanted to cut weight on. So it, it created a bigger delta between the two. And uh, so we have six models total. And we got our second batch of prototypes um, this last week. And they're all been on snow a bunch. And they're awesome. They really, like I said, it's, it's, uh, I'm not a huge fan of marketing or trying to push people to do anything. But my advice would be, you know, we have a 30 day money back guarantee. So I'm sure some people will get them and ski on them because they only ski six days and send them back. Like, woo, I got my season for free. But, but the reality is they're that good that I don't think people will send them back. So that's where kind of the confidence or, or knowing your products uh, matters. Give me sort of the six models. So how wide are we going? And maybe we just do it by width, if that's okay for you. That's how we, that's how we name them anyway. It's an 88 underfoot is the narrowest. And that was designed essentially East Coast, you know, groomer skiers down to beginners has the biggest size range, goes from 160 to 186. And then a 98 is the next step up, which is kind of a really dynamic all around ski, you know, a little narrow for powder, but honestly, these, these actually work really well in the powder too, 104 and 110. So the four models are 88, 98, 104, 110. And then the side countries are the 98 and the 104. Got it. And uh, they all have the the key to the whole thing. They all have long radius, uh, the 88s being the shortest radius. Um, but they all have, you know, 23, 24, 26 meter radius. And then we did this keyhole technology where you disrupt the torsional flex just in front of the binding. And that causes the ski to not really need the typical side cut mechanism to turn. It just kind of, it's instant power and instant, and it really is much more in line or, or it tracks well with edge angle. So at a low edge angle, you get low pressure, but really good, you know, kinesthetic field feedback. So even a beginner can kind of feel, whoa, the pressure is right there. It's right under my foot all the way up to high edge angle. You, you can power the ski up incredibly fast, regardless of the, you know, what you'd consider the long radius of side cut. When did that notion or idea start to be a thing that, you know, you started thinking about before you actually officially woke up? We were talking a bit earlier about your, you wake up, you're in bed, you let the ideas kind of turn around. So I don't know if keyhole technology, if, if that's when that came to be, but I'm wondering like when in your career did you start thinking about that? Like what if we started softening up torsional rigidity just in front of the toe piece um the idea came from 03 um but i didn't really know i knew it from a feel standpoint in 03 04 um then it i got a different sensation in 0405 0506 on atomic they had the beta which was the you know the two aluminum tubes or the kind of and that created a different kind of thing because those are longitudinally really stiff, but torsionally weak because they're two separate things. And um, but again, not not entirely developed. I knew the feel, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it or how the application would be the most effective. But those two models of sort of Gieski more, but also Slalom, were just they had attributes that I knew I was going to circle back to. They were the two best skis that I skied on in my career, and and um, 
And then it wasn't until more like 2008, 2009, that I actually started to really get a handle on it. And I started dremeling with a really sharp pointed dremel just in front of the bindings and going down into the top layer of aluminum and, and testing out with a stiffer ski, how deep, what did you have to do to disrupt that and get a, get a, a noticeable sensation difference? And what did that do to the times in racing and what did it do for the sensation and recreational skiing or just normal skiing? And I worked on that for, you know, two or three years. Um, and in the midst of still trying to race and all that. And then, you know, unfortunately, like I said, that was one of the things that was too outside the box for the companies that I was working with. They would never build it into the ski. So I was doing it as like an aftermarket thing, which was incredibly imprecise and and ultimately not terribly effective because what I could get done was not really what needed to happen. So this is the first time. I mean, I would say when when we did this, like when I was with Cross and we were there, but with a more or less a full carbon fiber construction with no metal in the in the crossings, we really couldn't do it because the integrity of that material was too fragile. You could just you'd put a, any kind of a deflection point there, and the ski would just snap right there. Um, you needed that carbon fiber. You ding that stuff up, it it, it changes quickly. Um, so this is the first chance I've really had to do it. And again, I didn't take much risk. But the great thing about this style is that as long as everything else is where it needs to be, right? You have to reduce the side cut because the side cut fights that. If you had a big side cut and a inflection point, the tip would always be fighting it. The tip would be trying to do its thing and this inflection point wouldn't really be able to do its job. So you need to reduce the side cut. You need to stretch that out a bunch. You need to have this the flex and the early rise points really pretty dialed. But beyond that, as long as you do it loosely right, which I discovered over those three or four years, um, you know, and you hit your, your overall flex um, it, it gives you a huge window. I mean, the very first ones we got, like I said, we had very experienced testers, guys who have tested thousands of pairs of skis. And they were like, right away, like, whoa, these are definitely different than anything I've ever skied on. And ultimately, we're like, these are better than anything I've ever skied on. Those are big claims. So let me ask, with these differences, and we're going to stay on this for a minute. Is this something that skiers could expect that they will notice more on piste and maybe on really firm groomers is this something that one will you know like where is this difference that you're describing when you say nothing really feels like this more noticeable on piste or off well that's the interesting thing is certainly more on piste when there's some pressure under the foot right and powder or stuff like that there's just yeah. not enough pressure to really do it but the interesting thing is Anyone who builds powder skis or really any kind of off-piste tree skiing skis will tell you, you don't want a lot of side cut for that. You want, no, a, fairly no. stiff, you want a fairly stiff ski with a really well-built early rise because that lets you be really quick edge to edge and not track off and then the powder big side cut will kill you. So it, it's even though the actual keyhole technology is much more noticeable on harder groomed snow or not really hard, but any anything where you have a consistent surface, things like that, you know, arcing or higher edge angles, it allowed us to then make a ski that you notice other better parts and other stuff because we had to reduce the side cut. So now it just works better. And we got the early rise and rocker and all that pretty well dialed. So it's a ski that while you might have a powder ski that works great in powder because it doesn't have much side cut, you put that same ski on anything harder, grooms or anything like that, and it, it doesn't turn and it flaps, you know, the tip flaps a bunch and it just doesn't have any real pressure and on ice or harder snow. And inevitably, um, you know, even in powder, 
you're going to hit some harder patches, you know, whether it's hitting rocks underneath the powder or scraped off sections where it's just chalky or wind affected. Um, so yes, the, the keyhole allowed the ski to be noticeably better in every condition, but the actual keyhole part is actually more focused on, you know, arcing higher edge angle, you know, harder snow. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I mean, we, we bang this drum a lot. I talk a lot, and so do some of our other reviewers. I tend to talk about it more in like really steep technical terrain. I don't like skis with a lot of, and I mean, you've skied Crested Butte, like you know what I'm talking about. But I think in really steep stuff, when you're on a ski with a lot of side cut, where like the last thing I want is for that ski to hook up when I don't want it to, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're like high siding. And yeah, or, or you're going down the hill ass first, which is not pleasant. You know, the, the widest part of your ski is your tip, right? So all things being equal, that's the part that's going to hook up the hardest. And if you hit wind affected stuff or anything else, yeah, you, it's a, it's a killer really. And so, like I said, that in that space, especially for more advanced skiers, that's what you really notice that you just have this unbelievable fluidity in play where you're never, the side cuts, never doing anything. You have pressure in about 40 centimeters right under your foot all the time. And that's all you really ever feel, but you have the stability and the flotation, you know, the surface area of the full ski, but the pressure seems to come from just right under your foot. I'm going to give you one more pass at this. Somebody listening to this who might be like, boy, okay, this sounds interesting, but I'd like to hear Bodhi articulate the thing that I might notice to be most different. If I'm taking out a one of the peak skis versus two or three other skis of a similar width. You want to try this yeah, again? So, <laughs> yeah. So, so imagine the feeling, the difference between um, a hockey skate and a ski. So a ski, you have tip, middle, tail, all your pressures underfoot, but the tip and tail go up. So if you hit anything, that tip will react, especially a wider ski. It's a lot of surface area. It's going to react and it. That ripples through the whole ski. So it disrupts your whole arc. It throws your balance off. Advanced skiers get used to that. In, in, inexperienced skiers get thrown off. Their balance wobbles. You'll see them kind of hook a tail or hook a tip and get all weirded out. This just brings all that focus into the middle of the ski. So for a beginner, it becomes, they get really good kinesthetic feedback from their foot, the way that you would when you're walking. When we walk, our, all our weight's under our shoe, and we're like, okay, this is normal. And a ski, it spreads out, especially if you have a little little too sharp tip with a big side cut. That thing can catch at random times and feel all weird. And you know, it's way out in front of you. It starts to turn you sideways. And as you said, for an advanced skier, um, you, know, it, it, you, you expect to have um, you know, pressure under your foot. And when you don't, it can be in, in bad timing and you can get yourself into trouble even as an advanced skier. So it brings all the pressure part of the ski into the middle. If you're in powder, I would say compared to another, not a ton of side cut ski, you're not going to notice a huge difference. It's just kind of surfy, lots of power, lots of energy, really quick edge to edge. I would still say you notice it edge to edge. The speed edge to edge is really quick, but it's not aggressive. It's just it's just stable. It feels like you, you get the same exact position of the grip every single time because it doesn't matter that your tip just hit a little ball of ice and rolled away and that disrupts the whole thing. And then, you know, it's every time right under the, you know, just in front of the toe binding and it just comes super consistent and it allows, it's sort of almost my, my, my goal was to have a, build a ski that without anybody trying to do anything, it built confidence in the skier. And if you have something that's super consistent and rock solid and always does the same thing and creates that sensation, the kinesthetic feel, people learn that way. That's really how we are born. It's how we learn to walk and everything else. If you can do that, then 
they'll tip inside and like, whoa, it's always there. It just picks me right back up. And then they'll go further and they'll go further. And we've seen it already with guys who are good skiers being like, wow, I didn't think I was going to be like hip to the ground on a 104. Um, but after a run, I realized I could just go further and further down. And that's the thing that people will notice. Even from a beginner, you just notice the consistent, stable position of the power. So like what's pushing back on your foot and where is that on the ski? And it's right in the same spot all the time. I don't know if I did any better that time, but I think you did. It was was fun anyway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where are you spending most of your time skiing these days in terms of like terrain types? Are you finding yourself primarily ripping corduroy? Are you primarily off piste? Are you, what's your feeling about moguls too? It's circumstantial. Um, (laughs) You know, this year we didn't have a ton of, of big storms, you know, last year, February, I, I, was barely on groomers at all. We got yeah. nine feet of snow up here at Big Sky, and um, it was just unbelievable all month. So, um, but yeah, this year was a lot of groomers. And with my kids, I ski with my kids. My older boys are getting good enough to really go out and rip around. And um, yeah, I spend a ton of time on groomers, and I, that's that's why I love those skis because I can just absolutely hammer. It's not just like sliding around. I can like make little turns. I can bop into the trees and then I can come out and rip like full power GS turns and on the same ski. And that's, that's unique to me. But, but yeah, I mean, in the trees a lot, you know, both at at Spanish peaks here, big sky, there's lots of, I mean, there's just so much terrain up here. Um, this is where I've primarily been, but I did a bunch of hiking and and touring over in, uh, Grand Targhee, um, for the Scarpa shoot. And that was awesome. I mean, it was a chance to really put the skis into some situations and, and kind of, you know, you can't fake that stuff. And and with the snow this year, we didn't have a ton of chances to do that. So it was fun to go through the whole line in some pretty advanced, you know, dropping into things. And, um, and that was awesome too. I, I, you know, I love it all. You can't, can't scare me off from the ski day. Okay. Except I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. A lot of racers, not necessarily huge fans of bumps. Where are you at with moguls? I like them, honestly. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm like a, a bump skier. <laughs> um, certainly my form would, would tell you that if you saw it. Uh, I ski bumps like a racer. But um, but here at Big Sky, again, the same thing. Off Challenger, off Headwaters, there's tons of stuff that's – they're pretty big bumps and they're on typically really steep stuff. So that makes it more fun for me. You know, flatter, you know, smaller bumps is just kind of annoying because I keep wanting to go faster and just bounces me around all the time. But but yeah, no, we had we had unbelievable days where you kind of ski a few, make turns on top of some, bop from one, jump, land on the, you know, it does, you know, it's very playful. I think a bump says like, if you approach it like you're trying to get down, they're just a nuisance in your way, right? They're, if you're trying to get from point A to point B, no, stay out of the bumps. But if it's like, if it's more like a little terrain park and you're just bopping around and you have the balance or the skills to, to do that, um, yeah, it's, I, I love it. Okay. All right. Just checking. You mentioned Scarpa. And I think the last time you and I talked, it was pretty shortly before, I think, there was the Scarpa announcement. And, you know, I have to admit, I was like, huh, I I didn't see that one coming. And I suspect there were some other folks who maybe felt the same way. Talk a little bit about sort of that partnership and and the why. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in New Hampshire, as we've talked about, and, you know, rock climbing, really involuntarily rock climbing with my uncle. Um, but lots of stuff. And Scarpa has always been kind of a, a world leader. I mean, they crush it. Their rock climbing shoes are the best. Their mountaineering shoe boots are the best. Um, you know, I don't think really any even mountaineers would would disagree with that, even with the the high level of, of sort of 
demand that they have on their equipment. But um, but their boots were always kind of uh, you know specific touring boots, right? They they came from that mountaineering side and and sort of you know as touring um, side country blew up, they they put their hat in the ring and and they were successful there. But their their performance on the alpine side of things, the downhill part, was was poor. I mean, I would say as good or better than most, but still not anywhere near what an alpine boot was. And when they approached me, they they said, hey, you know, we have an amazing team. We've, we always, our approach is to try to do things the best way we can. And they, they simply asked the question. They, they didn't say, hey, we want you to be on our product, whatever. They said, do you think you could help us build the best ski boot in the world? And I was like, yeah, I've been wanting to for a long time. The ski boots haven't changed in 50 years. I mean, they look different colors, you know, maybe different little different plastic compound, but the the Lang plug boot, the Nordica Grand Prix, I mean, those are the foundation of every race boot on the planet and every other boot, it comes from that. And and so I was like, 100%, what's the plan? And they were like, well, here's the boot we have. Let us send it to you. Check it out, you know, modify it, drop some rivets in there, do whatever you, you want to do. And then, and then uh, you know, we'll share with you sort of what our thoughts are, what our development timeline is and i'm not in a huge rush right now and you know i've told them and i say it openly the the quattro which is the you know quattro xt is the boot that i'm on it's still a prototype but it's out this next year um is not it's not a, a elite level alpine boot like i wouldn't race and i have raced in it now but i've i've dropped a couple rivets in the front to try to make the power transfer more front biased because right now it's it's entirely up the back of the boot so whenever you flex forward you feel like you're doing the same thing as any other boot, your ankles locked in, you're hammering the front of the, but all of that power is coming from the back of the boot. So you're actually just lifting up on your tail and that just causes the whole front of the ski to kind of just smudge in front of you. And when I told them that they were like, Whoa, you know, nobody's ever said that. And I was like, well, that was day one. So I think we got some room to figure more stuff out, but I dropped rivets in there. I, I, I made some play in that the harpoon mechanism in the back so the back can at least move a little bit to then allow the front to actually bind up and create some pressure. So I can't go into walk mode on mine because I've stuck a bunch of rivets through it, but um, it still actually works in walk. I mean, it doesn't work in walk mode, but I can still tour in it, but it just doesn't move much. But um, But they've committed to to the process, you know, and I, I'm not in a huge rush. I don't care if it takes me a year two years, three years. Um, they have the budget. They have really sharp people. Uh, a guy that I worked with at atomic and head, um, who's a fantastic boot builder. Uh, and, and they basically said like is to a degree, right. With, with peak. Yes, we will. We'll do what you say because nobody else has any idea how to build the new best ski boot on the planet. And, um, we actually had a call with them this morning and, you know, we, we talk all the time. I, I've been showing them all my little goofy things I do to their boots and <laughs> I stuff elastomers in. I cut a bunch of holes and stick things through and, um, they get a good kick out of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's the reason is because no other boot company on it, barring starting one myself, which is an absolute nightmare yeah. to do, to do boots, injection molding and margins and everything else is just horrendous. But, um, I wasn't going to be able to do that. And it was just like the skis. It's long overdue that somebody creates the next best boot that prevents injuries, works better, is more comfortable, like just goes on and off easy. Like all the things that we all experience all the time doesn't get wet. It's like basic things. But then also ultimately think of the whole process and you have to know what a ski boot has to go through. What, which ways does it bend? How does it need to bend? How is it bending? Because that's just how it is. And it's not helping. It's making it worse. But, and you know, I have that experience. I've worked with a lot of 
a lot of the best food engineers on the planet as well as ski engineers. So, um, yeah, that it was, it was an awesome opportunity for me to work with a, you know, a, basically a world leader in their categories and they're breaking into a new one. They're committed to it. And while I would be the first to admit, we don't have it right now. I think it was my best option to get it done. Say a bit more about you, you mentioned a ski boot where you get fewer injuries. Say a bit more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, for those of you who who are, are experimenters, if you were to bolt your ski boot to a concrete floor, like flat down, and, and then stand in it, both boots stuck to the floor, and try to flex straight forward with your knees, you couldn't do it. it, would, it if you were unbuckled, you could, but if they buckle them, the boots are meant to flex out. They flex out at about a 15 degree angle. So sometimes 16, 17. And the reason for that was designed back in the 70s and 60s because the skis had no side cut. So when you started the turn and you drove your knee in and forward, the edge angle actually went up more than it, it changed the edge angle more than what your knee was. So it essentially added like what you'd call knee angulation or ankle angulation. And, and it did it automatically because for the ski to maintain its edge angle, your knee would have to flex out like this. As you went forward, you'd have to flex super bow-legged and, and, and you know, maintain the edge angle. And that actually helped a lot. It, it allowed for people who could hit the front of the ski hard to actually make the ski turn. It, it just kind of made it react better. And ironically, then now we have side cut and the ski turns like crazy anyway. And if you go and jam the front of the boot on a typical aggressive ski, it's, it's overreactive and it yeah. you know, high sides you. It's actually really challenging. And then secondarily, as soon as you're in the turn, those skis didn't continue to arc that was actually kind of a smudge slide turn now you push on the front and you get the ski arcing and then as you come back off the off the ski the edge angle decreases even though your your knee moves in a linear motion straight back you're maintaining your position same edge angle but you come back off the front the ski deangulates so here you are in the middle of your turn and your ski deangulates for really no reason except that you're slightly more back than you were forward before. And to me, that's an that's a really bad plan because it causes a lot of it causes a chain reaction of the way that pressure goes, where your body position is relative to the ski. And there's only a couple boots that are actually straightforward. The full tilts that I ski on are most of the time. If I'm looking high performance, the the XTs are actually straightforward. So they don't, they don't go out at all. And therefore, when you're in the middle of the turn, you're forward, backward, the edge angle stays the same. And you at least have that part <laughs> consistent, which in the myriad of variables in the ski turn, that's one you just don't need to screw with. I don't know why you would. And that's the point is that's hyper aggressive tip when you're forward. So what a lot of injuries are caused by people starting to, they go to stop, right? And then there, as we talked about, widest part of your ski starts to, starts to compound and it, and it digs in the hill automatically. Boom. Weight goes forward onto the front of the shin edge angle jacks up and they go, Holy shit. And then they go back to release that they release the edge. They're in a backseat position, rotated and boom, knee goes out. And it's a, it's a, it's a consistent. I mean, I have three people here that I, that I, somebody sent me a video. What do you think happened right here? I said, she blew her knee ACL. I can, I know exactly what happened. And sure enough, ACL three people this year, and it's the exact same thing. And it's, it's a result of an overly aggressive boot that does something that was designed in the seventies. They just never fixed it with a very aggressive side cut ski. And I just think that we're well past the time where there should be a boot that doesn't exacerbate the likelihood of getting hurt. That was pretty well done. <laughs> Comprehensive. <laughs> it's what we like around here. Back to peak. So you've 
articulated, I think, quite well, like what you're doing with Scarpa and where you're hoping to go on that front. You've also mentioned there are two side country skis in the peak lineup. And so developing, you know, continuing to sort of push where AT boots are seems to align nicely with having a couple side country skis. I guess if we were to think about 10 years down the road from now, which that seems like a really long time in in Bodhi land, maybe. What are the thoughts about where peak might be? I mean, you've already said that you like the idea of trying to bring some technologies and designs, you know, into the game now that other brands might start to introduce into their own skis. But I don't know when you when you think really big picture on this, what do you see or foresee? Yeah, we didn't touch on that before, but it's another very comprehensive. Um, the, the scalability of a, of a ski company, the way that I want to do it is, is it's not, there isn't, you can go to 15, 20,000 pairs with a sort of combination of OEM partner, in this case, Alon, or one of the really high end manufacturers and, um, and in-house. So we're built, we have a factory down in Bozeman. It'll be the super high end skis that we build, um, innovation center, press, all the stuff. So we'll be able to really tweak and, and mess with things really quickly, have it on snow in a day. Um, that's huge. But, um, but the reality is it's been frustrating for me over the years, the, the manufacturing process and what that does to the ability to use better, more advanced, more modern exotic materials to, to do in a ski. So, you know, I'll give you one example, like everything in a ski is designed um like this right so we have you know here's your here's your metal right it's shaped you know you might put a shape in it whatever but there's your metal you can pick the thickness you can cut it in laterally shaped this way so that it changes a little bit but ultimately you're dealing with metal that thickness is your primary deciding factor fiberglass same rubber um wood is the only part that you can shape but really you're also limited so you take a material like this that has a uniform property and all of a sudden you bend it in half like this and now you have a totally different performance characteristics out of this material right you use it on your things that would hang your bookshelves that metal if you didn't have that little arm the bent flange that gives it the you know integrity it wouldn't hold your bookshelf up but they figured out wow this metal is sweet but we don't want to make it so thick and strong that it just can be flat, flat and hold the bookshelf. We'll make it super thin and light and just shape it so that it can sustain much more pressure, right? And that's in every industry across the board. The problem is our, our manufacturing process limits what we can do there because we have a laminate construction. It's just stacked up. You stick it in the press. It squishes it, cooks it. And also, glue makes it unrecyclable. It's toxic as crap. It's just nasty. It takes a long time and it's imprecise. There's a huge range of how skis come out. We test hundreds of skis to find the good ones. A lot of people in the consumer market buy a pair of skis. Ah, I don't like, I don't like vocal or I don't like whatever. Reality is they just got a crappy pair because there's hundreds and hun thousands of pairs that come out that are just wrong. I mean, they're just straight bad because the glue got screwed up. Something slid sideways in the ski in the press and you'd never know it, but like you, you might not hate vocals. You might love them, but that pair was crappy. And I've seen that a million times. So the ultimate goal of peak, and I have a, a great friend partner um, over in, in Germany who does automated manufacturing, crazy stuff like makes almost everything you interact with every day, his machinery or his company individually. So as soon as you start looking at exotic materials, you know, Kevlar, carbon fiber, 
engineered from a molecular level up to get the just the right characteristics, you can take one thin layer, you know, call it a millimeter thick, shape it, not just into this, but this one, as you can imagine, right, turn this upside down and recess that down into, uh, a, you know, aerospace foam core, right? So you have six of these recessed down in the core, foam filled the top. It looks just like a wood core, but yet these guys are all in there. Now this thing will bend this way up because, but it won't bend down if that's some Kevlar carbon fiber, right? Because you can't bend a triangle away from itself. It will not bend down, but you can make it, you can put little cuts in it that'll let it bend up. So now you've taken something that had very uniform properties or very uniform impact on what a ski does, and you've dramatically changed it by folding it a little bit. So you can imagine when you talk about sort of exotic materials, Kevlar, carbon fiber, um, graphene, you know, and being able to manipulate that material, shape it exactly from underfoot to just in front of the foot, change the shape, change where the ridges are. And you can do that and prefab those, cap it with foam top and bottom, have a, have a pre-assembled base with inverted edges. So now your edges are actually, instead of the little teeth of your edges sitting on your base, they sit up. Then you drop a cap over top of that and laser weld or sonic weld it to the thing and everything's sonic welded together. You have no glue. You can build a pair of skis in five or six seconds, start to finish. Your cost is probably 45 bucks, 50 bucks all in, more durable. And then you can put the same ski back in the same machine and it pulls it all apart and it's 100% recyclable. So that's ultimately the what Uber did to the taxi industry. And that's where this is going. Um, you know, because at that point, we're not going to produce a million and a half peak skis, even though we could do it out of one machine with two employees and keep the cost all down. And, and again, we don't have to start building skis for next year, three months ago, we can start building skis for next year in August. You know, we can have all the orders in and if somebody orders a pair and we don't have any, we can push a button and that ski is out in the box, ready to ship to the person in 15 seconds. Um, and it, so that, that again is similar to in a different sort of way to what I want to do with Scarpa and what I've tried to do lots of times is like truly think of what is the problem and what is the solution and then is it doable and is it economically sound? And, and in this case, fortunately at my age and my, with my network, it's just plug and play. Honestly, it's not even me. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll go through and tweak that, you know, what materials we use. And, and we have an engineering partner who does advanced materials over in, in Idaho, who, you know, mostly aerospace, defense department, like crazy, you know, stuff that you have to get clearance to know about. Um, but they can do stuff that is just ridiculously cool, but it didn't, it doesn't even apply to the current methodology. I, no matter what they did, I could probably figure out something and it might make the ski a little better, but it's kind of just the same ship. You have to change the manufacturing process to allow for these things to do what they can do. And I think we're going to be able to build skis in the next, you know, five, six, seven years that are just completely in a different realm than what we have now. And then along that same line, once we have that capacity, we become a, we become a really appealing OEM partner for everybody else is, you know, if we had it right now, if that was done, we'd have an order for half a million skis today. And when it's in China, you have this, these different quality things. And in this case, we can reduce the variance of the ski production down to like German quality. Like there is zero difference because you've reduced all the moving parts. You've reduced the glue. It's, it's a floating internal core. It's not even stuck to anything. You're just 
you're just packing it all together and then sonic welding it. So when you peel it apart, it just it literally, as soon as you break that sonic weld, which is stronger than glue by about four times, it just comes apart. Out comes your core, peel it all apart, start over. You like that? Is I do. That comprehensive? <laughs> Dear Lord. It's next level shit. Yeah, I'm I'm out. I think that just you just I I'm tapping out. I'm glad I asked the question about what are you envisioning, you know, say 10 years from now. Um, yeah, the irony is the irony is that that's not in our sim. It's not in our pitch deck. We're raising money, not that I need to fucking go pushing people for money, but if that sounds appealing to you, there's ways to find us. We are still raising money. Once we raise this first round, we're self-funded because of the economic model. So, but we don't even share that in there because it honestly freaks people out. They're like, whoa, 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 what is this? Like, you can take over the world. It's like, well, yes, we can <laughs> because no one else is doing anything. And I have all the connections and I've built a ski this long already in the same machine. It's only just only good for somebody who's 11 inches tall. And that's only because that's the size of the tray that they currently have. All we have to do is modify the size, source materials, and off we go. Until you take over the snowblade market. See, you already have your first your first snowblade. So, yeah. for a very uh, small person, even for, for a very small, small. Even snowblades, that's still pretty small snowblade. My God, I'm I'm like mentally exhausted. We've only been talking for fifty minutes. What else should I ask you about? Oh, I do, I do want to mention because because a lot of this stuff, I think it kind of helps to bring everything together. Plus, it's just kind of cool for people to know Alpine X and Snowbon. I think we might have mentioned Snowbon previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, indoor ski thing. It's like a little treadmill that turns sideways. The ones down outside of Denver. Um, awesome group of guys started it, and uh, and really cool model. And I, I, it's a learn to ski more than anything, but it's still really fun, even if you're advanced. I and mean, I had a great time there, and for fitness and for off season, it's just awesome. But um, they're expanding, and then I partnered also with a company called Alpine X, and they're the guys who um, created Great Wolf Lodge, the indoor yep. water parks. Um, really solid guys, super nice, really honest and genuine dudes and did very well with Great Wolf Lodge, as you can imagine. And experts in hospitality, experts in that whole dynamic sports activity, hospitality, all lodging. And, um, and we're, we're building the first one right now, just outside of Fairfax, Virginia, um, basically focused on these, these very population dense areas, bringing skiing to the people because, it's a lot to ask somebody who isn't culturally invested in skiing, whose parents don't ski, to become a skier. And that's a big part of why the industry has been flat. Actually, those two things, you know, eight or seven or eight out of 10 people who try skiing for the first time don't ever ski again. So that's a really depressing right. stat in the yeah. sport. That's going to create a fairly flat or declining population of skiers in itself. But the fact that it's such a you know, family thing and parents make kids do it and it just becomes, you know, heritage based. But we're, we're, you know, Alpine X is, is bringing that, you know, to these, you know, sort of different cultures, different places and, and making it very accessible uh, price point and um, just reducing all the barriers. So those two together, because even with Alpine X, it's still an indoor ski hall, legit snow, snowmaking, it's cold, you need the clothes, you need all the gear, but you pair that with Snowbond and now a kid comes into their facility looking to skateboard or, or rollerblade or whatever he's doing and sees the hill. Oh, that looks rad. Okay, we'll start over here because you can do it in your shorts right now. You can be on the slope in four minutes for 30 bucks or 40 bucks, whatever it is. And you can develop the skills that then you don't 
need, necessarily need an instructor. You don't spend three days just falling and wondering what the hell you're doing wrong. Yep. You know, you can get all that in a half an hour on Snowbond. Then you can transition straight to Alpine X, which is a legit snow hill with jumps and all kinds of stuff. And I think that between that and well, let's we'll cord that off. Those two things, I think, in ten years, maybe it's twelve, but I think it'll be ten ten years. I think people will look at Alpine X and Snowbon as the most impactful thing to happen to winter sports, you know, snow sports in the last hundred years, because we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people per location who yep. would never be exposed to it, who are now exposed to it and can fall in love with it and can get the benefits. And they may never, I mean, you know, while it is meant to be a, a full democratization of a sport that has been inherently narrow and, and had a lot of barriers to entry. There's still around Dallas and, and, you know, around Fairfax, there's a lot of wealthy people who, once they're exposed to it, will take vacations and go yep. to the resorts and all that. But a huge percentage of those people, are just it's not feasible. They're just not going to do it. Maybe they'll save up for five years and take their kids to, you know, Stowe or something like that, you know. But for a lot of families, it's just not economically feasible to do ski trips. It's like, it's a crazy expense. But within that, we can also tweak it and package deals because if we push people to places on off days off seasons, not in the peak times, the resorts want that. They just don't want them there over Christmas break. <laughs> yep. No resorts want more people during that time. And so we can package these deals. Hey, you know, we got 50 deals. You go up to, you know, wherever, go to Steamboat, go to go to Squaw Valley on these days, and we can get your costs down to, you know, 700 bucks for a week for your family, you know, because it, it it's great for the resort. It brings people in, it makes the connection. It's It's awesome. So there's there's a lot of things that are tied together with this package of things that I'm doing that are truly meaningful, right? It's like, I mean, I was a selfish athlete most of my life. And, you know, you have to be, you gotta, you're focused on your own stuff. And now I'm able to take a lot of that knowledge and awareness and connections and networking and business acumen and, and kind of piece these things together that maybe they would find each other ultimately. But in this case, it was just like, boom, boom, you need him. He needs you. Like Alpine X, they were like, what do you think? Is it going to be good? And I was like, it'll be sweet. Your bottleneck is learners. You're putting this in a place where there's not and there's not a huge population of endemic skiers. So how are you going to try to, if you got 200 people who have never skied before in Alpine X in Dallas, you got 200 instructors? Because if you don't, you're going to deal with the same ratio that they do outside. You're going to deal with eight out of 10 of those people having a crappy time because they don't know what they're doing. They got no instructor. They're just out there winging it and all they do is crash. And it's like you plug in Snowbond and all of a sudden you've solved that. Almost you'll have nine out of 10 who absolutely want to do it again and have the skills to do it without an instructor. And, you know, then you pair that with a ski that's easier, more consistent, easier to learn on and builds confidence and, you know, skio something that can coach people without having a coach. They can look at apps, drills, and measures everything they're doing, tells them whether they're on the right track or how to change different things and develop. Those things are, they all work in one cluster. And I think it's going to be absolute ass kicking. To use the word that you keep bringing up in this conversation, it's all pretty comprehensive. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, as you know, right? When you got a lot of variables and stuff, it has to be comprehensive. Mm -hmm. If it's not, you'll just miss shit. And the miss shit is what causes failure. Yeah. We did have, by the way, I think it was last fall, John Emery, the CEO of Alpine mm -hmm. X, um, had mm -hmm. him on the podcast. And it was a really, I'm going to put a link to that conversation in the show notes to this episode. I couldn't get away from thinking about the analogy of urban climbing gyms 
right? And um, and yeah. John actually didn't he didn't see that as a one to one analogy with Alpine X. And people can listen to the conversation to to hear more about that. But I the thing I love about it is well, one, it just is an opportunity for you know if I live in downtown New York or in Fairfax. If these Alpine X centers are coming along, it's like, hey, you've heard of skiing, right? But it's a pretty steep barrier to entry. And for people to, and this is a thing that I've actually had a number of old friends come out to Crested Butte this winter. And they're either first time skiers or they've skied three or four days in their lives. And I've kind of forgotten, like, it might not be that obvious to a beginner how to step into a ski binding. I can right? tell you, I had a buddy the other day who skied a lot and he was having trouble with it. I was like, what? I, hmm. You just put your heel in there and push down. You know, if like, he was like coming in hot, like from a foot yep. up. He's like, ah. Yep. Like, <laughs> don't, no, do, don't do that. You got to be an expert to pull that move off. Like hot dog. Remember that where the guy flies in? <laughs> yeah, ah, right. In the- yeah. It's a very advanced technique. But, but even that, honestly, to give people a place they can go. Get comfortable with the act of stepping into a ski binding, putting on and taking off a ski boot so that by the time you are going to whatever ski area out there, you've at least solved a bit of the learning curve and you can actually spend more time and energy and thought like worrying about, I don't know, enjoying your day or getting down that run as opposed to like, I literally don't know how to do any of this. Yeah. So yeah. that seems like that's a really... A, a and, and the proximity of everything else too. Think of it like what you said about climbing walls is actually, you know, climbing gyms is, is I think it's more analogous. And you, I'm glad you met John because he's, is he not like one of the gentlest, sweetest dudes? Yeah. He's not as comprehensive with his, with his descriptions, but I can tell you from the business side, the guys are seriously comprehensive. They, they, hmm. they die. They know that business like crazy. So, but when you think of it, like the biggest challenge there is it's not a culturally relevant sport generally right so black latino you know lower income yes. don't even really think about it they're like skiing's not even a thing they might see it on tv like once every four years but they're like uh and so in this case you're you're creating an environment where they come in there's something for everybody to do the mom dad sister brother they can go roller skating they can go climbing cl- rock walls in there they can have a beer all glassed into looking right at the ski slopes sledding slopes you know little half pipe things all kinds of stuff and and then then you've already kind of you know you're you're getting people who well it's not culturally relevant it's appealing or it's interesting and you're seeing people right there and like i said there's still even with that model they were missing that. How do you how do you prevent them from having a crappy time? Once they're like, let me try that, you know. And and in that sense, rock climbing is I would say similar. Like you need to have a rock wall that's challenging but not hard because a lot of people get on all uh, they get up five feet and like Jesus this is terrifying and they're they're good. They're like I don't need to do that one again. <laughs> like that's a that's a done thing. But you but you change the slope of the wall, get their confidence, get them aware yeah. of things, and then they you know. So it's about building the incremental steps into it. And that's where Snowbon honestly fits like there isn't another thing. I mean, ski resorts have worked for 35 years on the learn to ski, right? On the, on the never evers, like they don't commit a ton of energy to it because there isn't inherently a huge demand. As I said, that's because not that many people who don't ski start. (laughs) It's like you either did when you were little and you just battle through that first week and a half. That's terrible because your parents make you and then you're a skier for life, you know? But in this case, 
there's not a huge investment of that. They've tried and some places do, do a, a good job, but nothing like what Snowbond is. I mean, when you take 10 people who have never skied before, any demographic, any anything, you can have nine out of 10 of them be like, that was awesome. They get a workout. It wasn't scary. It was, you know, they feel empowered. They're like, wow, that was cool. I learned something new and quick too, you know? And then that same person after a half an hour can go out and snow plow down almost any trail and feel like they know how to stop. They know how to turn, you know, they know the basics. And that's, that's, that's never, there's never been a convergence of these different um, mechanisms to alleviate all the barriers to entry. Cause there's a lot of barriers to entry. We've only touched on a few, but yep. you know, this really does knock down. I mean, they're not gone, but they're so reduced yep. that it's not even the same thing as what it has been. Hmm. Once again, good stuff, man. Okay. So the, when people are hearing this on Friday, peak skis will have that announcement will come out. They'll, it, have, it will have come out 48 hours earlier. And then you're taking orders pre-orders now yeah yeah reservations yep just to make sure you lock in the model and the the size and then and that's refundable so just so people don't we're not trying to swindle anybody yeah (laughs) we don't want it you know and then the question which is you know a tricky one these days you are hoping to expecting to deliver skis by oh they're they're in construction right now all of them we greenlit the second prototypes were were dropkick it was they were just they were, I wouldn't say head and shoulders better. Two models were significantly better. There was two category toppers uh, on the first round that were just, I st- we still made those a little bit better. The other two were very simple fixes. They came out awesome. We greenlit, go. So it's producing right now. We'll be delivering, call it first deliveries. will will be starting in August and they'll go August, September, October, pre, pre any, any snow. So um, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's again, 30 day money back guarantee, just trying to get people to f- reduce barriers to entry. You know, if they're not for you, no problem, you know, but we want to reduce the barriers of like, well, shit, I don't want to spend 800 bucks on a pair of skis. And, you know, just cause I heard a podcast, and, um, you know, and then have them sit in my garage. So in this case, we've just kind of reduced everything. One of the little side notes, we have this flow code on the back. I don't know, you know, flow codes, the little circular QR codes, it's a buddy of mine, Tim Armstrong started that and amazing company and they're super great partners of ours. And we haven't actually fully fleshed it out yet, but the concept is you have a flow code on the back of your skis. We can geolocate off where they scan the flow code anyway. So, but essentially when you get your skis, you register and and you, you get um, the ability to basically have your own sort of flow code. So over the course of a year, you're like, Oh, these skis are rad on the chairlift. Somebody can scan the flow code, have a pair on the way to their house before they get off the top of the lift. And then they, you can get paid for that. We'll share, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks of the profits of each pair back to that person. So people who are fans who are doing grassroots marketing for us can essentially be cash positive at the end of the year, have the best skis on the planet and be cash positive. So again, just trying to, I I don't ever like to self promote that I'm a man of the people, but like, I get it. Like there's tons of people who would love to buy, you know, great skis. They just don't have the money or if they do, they're putting themselves in a shittier position financially. And so we have the financing option plus the, so we can finance. And then if somebody really gets on it, they can get out there and pay their financing bill just by selling skis and, and, uh, cycle back and, you like most mostly i just feel like is that that, that comprehensive it's pretty comprehensive (laughs) mostly i just feel like you know signing off by telling you to you know get some sleep oh i sleep dude how do you think i think like this it takes a lot of effort (laughs) 
that's a good thing dude it's like when i go to bed i like like my brain your brain's brain's like thank god (laughs) thank god what kind of sleep do you get at night are you on the like five to six hour train are you on the seven to eight what's your lately lately this winter has been shallow it's been tough because we got covid a month and a half ago and we have we have nine kids in the house all the time and five adults all the time and then two other nannies who are in and out and my daughter who comes in and out. So it's just like a Petri dish in here. So when one person gets something and it never goes like just everybody gets it, it's like one gets it and then another, two more and then like another one. So we're sick for three weeks or a month and COVID just crushed us. And then we got this crazy stomach bug that I don't know if it's going around down there, but it's this gnarly. It's been everywhere. It was back east and I heard it, huh. you know, in Colorado too. Um, yeah, like throwing up and just really bloated, like gassy up in your upper stomach and so uncomfortable. All the, all the babies, my both twins got it separately and were throwing up. And so that like throughout the night, when you stack all that stuff over the course of a winter, it was, there was a lot of way less than optimal, but we were on a great stretch going into the fall where we were going to bed at eight, eight thirty. So we're getting, you know, eight, nine the kids get up early. They get up at five forty-five yeah. or, or six, but, um, but yeah, typically I, I do get like, and when I do shut down, I shut down fast. I can just, and I can get up, deal with them, put them down and go back to sleep. And then if they throw up an hour later, I'm back up and go, but I still get that little chunk. It's like a, you know, I think the military is probably the only comparable is if you've been in like a skier where you travel as much as we do, like I can get on the plane and be asleep before it takes off. And huh. like, you know, like it just, I, I just train myself that way. So it's very convenient for my current situation because you got to log it in when you can. Huh. Yeah, that, that that's a bit of a superpower, I'd say. That's a good one. I, I wish I had that one. Well, hey, man, this has been interesting for sure. And uh, yeah, we certainly are looking forward to checking these skis out. Uh, would love to and, you know, offer our take on them. And, um, and sometime, I mean, we've sort of had enough conversations now. We're going to have to ski at some point, whether that's, yeah. you know, out in your neck of the woods yeah. or at an Alpine X you know, opening at some point, but uh, we'll, I think we need to figure this out now. You can't scare me off with a good time. I, I, I see all the time. It's <laughs> dumping snow right now. I don't know if you can see that. But I can't. Yeah. Well, good luck with all of it. I think it is cool, the various things that you're working on and um, and how they do kind of all interconnect. Um, so yeah, good job on, uh, you know, on keeping it comprehensive. <laughs> Thanks. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, it is now time for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment. It is currently Friday morning, April 8th, and I am actually at the Cliff Lodge at Snowbird. Gonna be skiing Snowbird the next several days, and so what I feel like celebrating right now is actually road trips. Now, I've probably celebrated this on past episodes of Gear 30, but, you know, Because of the state of the world, there's been less road tripping, at least for me. And so it was pretty great to throw a bunch of gear in my rig and start the drive out here to Snowbird. One of the best things about road trips, books on tape and podcasts, of course. And some of you, I think, are going to be extremely happy to know, given a recent Gear 30 podcast we did with Jed Yeiser and McKenna Peterson, that I am currently listening carefully and with intent to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, So that is underway. So far, so good. We're off to a great start. Pretty cool listening to um, this book surrounded by incredible scenery and, you know, just hitting the road. 
And so, appropriately, I'd like to raise a glass of Jank Spirit, which you Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy dorks are going to know exactly what I mean. Um, nobody else will, but that's okay. I don't have any Whistle Pig with me currently. We're going to try to find some tonight. Um, so, yeah, we're just... Uh, we're just going to go with some jank spirit. I think that would be my drink, not the, what is it? The International Galactic or the Galactic Gargle Blaster. I'm more of a jank spirit, just neat type of guy. All right, you Douglas Adam dorks, that was for you, by which I mean that was basically for Jed Geyser and no one else in the world. And so that's what we're celebrating. Road trips, good books, getting to continue to ski, and yeah. That's what we got. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I, of course, want to say thanks to Bodhi for yet another great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. Our Snowblade Blister Crash Course video is going to be dropping next week. It's kind of amazing, if I do say so myself. And for those of you who are enjoying these conversations and who would like to see us go into our next Blister Crash Course video, the snowboard video, well then give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts and bring us closer to that 750 ratings review where I will then go break some bones and ligaments trying to snowboard that's what we got all right everybody have a great weekend i'm gonna go ski here soon we'll talk to you later